You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers Initiative. And to help me in assembling the Avengers is John Mills. Yes, yes, I am. I am here, and we are uh, excitingly uh, here to this time discuss the one movie that Disney does not have on its service for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I wonder which one it could be. I don't know. Which yeah, one could it be? I mean, mm, you know, I feel like it's just not easy being green. You know, John? It isn't. You it know? isn't, but yeah. it, it, it is easy for people to give us a uh, star rating and review, isn't it? That's huh? right. Huh? That's huh? right. Uh, of course, uh, they can find us wherever they get their podcasts in the 602 Club feed. Uh, thank you so much for checking out uh, Assembling Avengers. We're really excited to be here walking through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, you can also uh, find us on Twitter. Please follow us over at the 602 Club on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. You can find the entire network on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. Of course, there's a listeners-only discussion group you can join there called the Babel Conference. Talk to listeners from all over uh, the world, and you can find us online at track.fm. And if you go over to the dis- uh, contact section, you could send John and I an email there. We'd love to, uh, to talk to you that way. So, John, I think one of the most interesting parts about this movie comes even before we've seen it in the theaters because... This movie had a movie that came out before it, not Mm -hmm. too many years before that, like legitimately a few years called Hulk, but Ang Lee. And so uh, to deal with the, you know, other Hulk in the room, um, did you see that Hulk? Did you like that Hulk? I mean, the the Ang Lee Hulk? Mm-hmm. Why, yes, I did. I saw that in the movie theater, and I was so excited. Who wasn't excited to see an Oscar-winning director come and direct a comic book movie? What type of world were we living in where something so ma- marvelous could happen, so magnificent, so stupendous, and so weird? It was so odd. It was such an odd experience. I wanted to like that movie so bad. I tried to like that movie so bad, and there are things about it I like. I think that Ang Lee did some really crazy experimental stuff that was just way out of the box. It was a fresh set of eyes on a genre that, you know, let's face it, was very much tailor-made just for a very specific audience. And Ang Lee was trying to bring something art house to it. But, you know, the, the, the short version of the story is that's why I didn't see Ed Norton's The Incredible Hulk in the movie theaters. So that's, there you go. Yeah, see... What's funny is is that I didn't see Ang Lee's Hulk. I still actually haven't seen Ang Lee's Hulk. It's a movie that I need to go back and and watch sometime and and, and you know, it just mainly for curiosity's sake. And part of that I think was because of the mixed reaction that it got when it came out and I just thought, you know what? I'm I'm you know, I'm I'm good. And so that's one of those things which I Coming into The Incredible Hulk, I didn't have anything to compare this to other than knowing the references to, you know, the TV series 
um, than it had been in the 70s. So uh, that's really the only thing I had kind of a, as a reference to The Incredible Hulk at all. Uh, the one thing that I, I will say is that much like my beloved Star Trek V, the novelization of Ang Lee's Hulk, uh, I believe, was written by Peter David, and it's phenomenally good. It's incredibly good. And it's one of those things where you say, wow, if he hadn't gone so art house with the transitions and everything and some of his treatments of stuff, it would have been an absolutely stellar film. It would have been mm -hmm. a stunner of a film. It was like, wow, that's what he was trying to say? Oh, well, okay then. Like it was that type of reaction there. So just to yeah. to throw a bone there to that, that much maligned, often ignored uh, Hulk, uh, the novelization is quite good. I heartily recommend people uh, check it out. Yeah, and it's so interesting how that can happen, you know, um, and and it's it's interesting, too, because obviously we were still in a time period where novelizations of films like that still came out. You know, I, I remember mm -hmm. uh, the same period uh, Superman Returns had the novelization and I, I read that before the movie came out. Um, because, uh, you know, I wanted, I, I was such a Superman fan. I wanted to know what happened, you know, and I couldn't wait for the film, movie. Uh, it was, you know, it's a little silly, but. So, so, so. Let, let me ask though, just, I know this is a rabbit hole, but I got to know, is, is that novelization worth reading? Is it a good one? You know, um, I don't remember it being all that dissimilar to the film itself. So, oh, and so I don't. So if you liked one, you liked the other. Right. I don't remember it adding, like, I don't remember it being something that you felt like really added a lot to the movie. It felt more like, you know, a, a reproduction of the script, much like, say, kind of like Alan Dean Foster's, you know, like a novelization of like The Force Awakens. You know, it doesn't really add too much to the story. Uh, you know, it's pretty much straight up what you got in the film. So, well, this is interesting because I know you didn't see Iron Man in the theater. And then, of yeah. course, Hulk comes out just a few months later because they're double billing it here. And, of course, this is before Marvel Studios is producing its own films in the sense that it's not using a production company like Universal or Paramount. Um, and, um, of course, you know, Universal actually still owns the rights to the Hulk itself anyway. So, like you said, this isn't on Disney Plus for that reason. Um, much like with Spider-Man and, you know, the the whole rights issue with uh, Sony that we'll get into much later here on this show. But how did you see this? Did Was this one that you ended up picking up like uh, at a blockbuster uh, at the time or, mm. um, you know, that you found on TV? I don't remember specifically uh, what really spurred it on, except for the fact that I have a fondness for the character. So I knew I would eventually make my way to it. And I believe I could be remembering wrong who it was, but my memory tells me it was my brother saw it and said, yeah, you know, it's pretty good. You should check it out. It may have been somebody else, but in my memory, it's my brother who said that because my brother is a big fan of the Hulk as a comic book character and himself as a comic book collector. He always collected Hulk comics. He always was drawn to the character. So was I. Uh, I'm sure that's a whole psychological thing that we could you know, peel apart like an onion <laughs> if we wanted to. But um, although I will say Gray Hulk when he was the I think it was Gray Hulk when he was the bouncer in uh, in Las Vegas was pretty great. Um, that was crazy. That was years ago, too. But uh, so it, it would have been I would have grabbed it from 
probably like a Hollywood, vi- like Hollywood video or blockbuster. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, whatever would have been around at the time. And I remember putting it in and I remember I didn't love the ending, mm-hmm. but the rest of it, I was like, this is doing some interesting stuff. I liked the Stanley mm-hmm. cameo. I thought it was very clever. I thought that there was depth to it. I thought that it was uh, a very engaging movie. Uh, and, you know, it, it's very interesting because it very much, I think, and I think talking to you about this movie will be interesting because I see a lot of stuff that was carried forward by Zack Snyder in his superhero templates that is here in this superhero template. So Marvel had... Iron Man, Marvel had the Incredible Hulk, and Marvel decided based on on its metrics, we're going to we're going to choose the Favreau template. But there is it's not even an alternate universe. I really think mm-hmm. Zack Snyder and DC then said, "Okay, well we'll choose that template." And that's how we'll be a little bit different. Yeah, it's so interesting because I remember, you know, this came out, you know, after Iron Man and, you know, of course, the fact that this movie definitely has the connections with that, you know, you get um, where, you, you know, you see start technology, you know, um, they in fact, I would say one of the beautiful things about the way this movie is constructed is that it nonchalantly drops so much Marvel knowledge on you. If you know what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the beauty of it is that it's not in your face. It's just there. You know, um, the fact that, you know, this references the Captain America project back from World War Two, you know, and which is going to be a film that we'll get uh, in, a, in a few films. And so it's setting that uh, there, um, you know, the the fact of um, at the end of this, obviously, you get the stinger with with Tony Stark coming to um the general saying, hey, you know, we're, we're wanting, I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers Initiative. You know, uh, the, the whole thing is doing its job in connecting with the larger what's going to become the cinematic universe. And yet I was struck by watching this again is just how easily it does it without kind of winking to you every single time, like saying, hey. Are you picking this up? Are you picking this up? It's just it's just there. Yes. Absolutely right to call that out. And while you're talking about it, there is a very interesting thing because you mentioned at the beginning there's no overarching uh production house like Disney is for Marvel now. And so this is Marvel establishing itself. And it's really interesting because they're taking the steps to tie things in and you have to wonder Marvel really made Disney the movie powerhouse that it is now, the studio powerhouse that it is now. And Marvel initially was being agnostic about who got to release it. They didn't care, but they were still tying things together. So what's really interesting about those steps is that they were in a position, if things had gone down a different way, if Disney had not bought them, that money would have been spread around to everybody. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. it wouldn't have been dropped in one mm-hmm. set of bank vaults somewhere. It would have been everybody. The whole industry would have been lifted by Marvel mm-hmm. as opposed to one studio. And you almost have to wonder, would that have been better for films in general? Especially because they would have been more willing to take risks instead of locking right. into the yep. singular vision yep. of things. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question. And I think, you know, I, I would say when it came to kind of first impressions to me was a couple things really stood out. I remember even the first time I saw this was we didn't get an origin story. You know, the origin mm-hmm. story is all in the credits, which I thought was really smart because, you know, Hulk is in the was in the cultural zeitgeist. I feel like enough to people kind of ha- having some idea. So you just you really just play it there. Um, and the rest of the movie just gets to be about this character and his journey, I think. Um, and instead of it being more of an origin story, it really becomes more of like a fugitive story, you know, and and that's uh, slightly more interesting in the sense that, you know, we just had an origin story with Iron Man. And so we were not doing the same thing twice. Um, and another thing that that really stood out to me was the fact that. By this being a fugitive film, it has a different feeling from Iron Man. Like, it is a different type of film, um, you know, and so it has its own sensibilities. It has its own production ba- value sensibilities. Um, it has its own look and feel, uh, and it it doesn't feel the same. And I think, to me, even back then, there, there's something really nice about that because you can watch them back to back i mean gosh we've watched them now you know we're just doing this every week right now and so i watched iron man and just watch this you know and and it it doesn't just kind of feel like you're watching same but different and that's a to me that's a real strength here and and the last thing i'll say that i just was an original impression too was the fact that the way that Hulk is being portrayed here, he's a different type of person than Tony Stark. So the hero mm-hmm. is different. Um, and I think, again, that's something we kind of talked a little bit about in the first episode. That in many ways, they start to just kind of look for the Tony Stark personality almost and mm-hmm. then write a character into that. And here... Because they're working on these movies side by side, different studios, all that stuff, that doesn't happen. And I think the movie is better for it for allowing Bruce Banner and the Hulk to be their own characters and like their own, have their own sensibilities because it's a completely different type of person than Tony Stark. You know, like Bruce Banner's life is absolutely nothing like Tony's. And, and I think that is interesting. I agree. And it is interesting because of the fact that I think since they are being worked in parallel, it's important not to immediately repeat yourself because if you have people carrying over and they know who they're targeting, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. They know the same audience is coming to both of these movies. And the last thing they want to do is bore them inside of a year. Uh, So definitely I think there, there's a smart decision there. But I think also the fact is that what's really interesting is the comedy aspect of things when handled by Favreau feels a certain way and it works. It's I, I'm not at all knocking it. Marvel gets a little too jokey as we go. to We'll, we'll, we'll hit on that uh, when we go further down. But Favreau finds the right balance of humor in his Iron Man. And I think that here you have a good use of humor on the most part, 
But what I think happens a little bit here is there's a little bit still of that feeling of what kind of went wrong with superhero movies in the 90s, which is the desire to put too much into one movie. Same thing sort of happens with Green Lantern. Uh, You know, I know that's a totally different cinematic universe and everything. But as much as I enjoyed, you know, Green Lantern, uh, you know, you and I were two of the four people that did, I guess, was outside of Ryan Reynolds. But like the the impulse here that does trip up the movie a little bit is there's still that feeling of trying to cram things in. And I'd say that there's a difference here with Iron Man that's key. Iron Man doesn't feel like anything is wedged in or there by studio note. There's a little bit here that feels a little bit more studio note type. We need to make sure this goes this way. We need to make sure we're setting this up. So I think what you find, and the thing is, I am 100% certain that there were notes like that with Iron Man. But I think, again, you you find that there's a deafness that Favreau used that makes it not noticeable, as opposed to Hulk, there are a couple of points where really did you need to have the guy hit his head and become, you know, oh, hey, look, here's a villain coming up in the next one. It's like, uh, you know, you could have not gone that far with it. You could have pulled back just a little bit and had it be, you know, a little bit less ham handed, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, so just like. What are a couple of quick examples then of things that you feel like maybe just took it a little bit too far? Mm. Well, I mean, there there are obviously characters they're setting up for a sequel where it's um, let let's say they're they're being given the Mace Windu treatment, but a little less, uh, a little more obviously, where it's like you know, you know that these characters are being put in there and having specific moments in the film just to set them up for the next one. And to bring them through to the continuity. And I think that um, the fight with Abomination at the end um, is a little... It's a little too unrestrained, I guess you could say. Like, I look at the, the final battle in Iron Man, which I didn't have endless praise for when we were talking about it. And I look at the final battle here. And again, there's just a little bit there's just a feeling in Iron Man that Favreau shaved a little bit off the corners so that it didn't feel out of control. Whereas with this, it's got a feeling of a little bit too much. Should have pulled back a little bit here and there, uh, especially for the sake of what the effects could accomplish at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Which so I, I, think those, I, you know, those I do want to, I do want to mention that um, honestly, I think, the biggest problem there becomes that they don't hire ILM to do the effects. Um, yeah. They hire Rhythm and Hughes to provide the CGI, and I think that's probably their biggest mistake um, is is not going with ILM at this point because ILM is probably going to give you the best work that you can get at the, here. And so I, I do well, think that's uh, one of the problems that you get with that whole sequence. Well, let, let me let me uh, let me supplement that by saying this is that Rhythm and Hughes was I think they might have come back, but I, I know that Ang Lee actually went up driving them bankrupt with uh, Life of Pi, but they might have come back. Um, I think they did, actually. Anyway, 
Rhythm and Hues does good work, but every effects house has its strengths and its weaknesses, except for the old school ILM campus, which has no weaknesses that I can detect. But any effects house has stuff you go to them for. And I think just to supplement your point, at this point especially, character animation at the scale that you mm-hmm. want here, yes. that's why you go to an ILM. Is because they're always tip of the spear. You go mm-hmm. to the old school crew that's going to give you the realistic Optimus Prime. And, you know, in the future, yep. the amazing Tarkin and Rogue One. You go to those people who are top of the game, as it as it were. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't yeah. take anything away from Rhythm and Hughes. It's just know your strengths. And Rhythm and Hughes has a lot of strengths. But at this stage, the character animation is not it. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, since you brought it up, it's definitely not a bad time to talk about the green gorilla in the room. But, you know, I think the end battle and I think the action overall, one of the things I was really impressed with the rewatching of this movie is how much of the action you could tell is practical like that they are you know especially when they're at the school you know so much of Mm -hmm. that is practical it's happening practically the way that i think hulk interacts with his environment for the time period looks very good and i think Mm -hmm. they were really trying in that sequence specifically to not push the boundaries i do think the problem just becomes is that and i don't Rewatching it, I didn't really have so much a problem with the fight itself that happens at the end, more so than I just have with that the execution never looked as good as it needed to to really bring you over. I, because that was um I I really actually like the way that the battle goes, and I love the way that, you know, Hulk almost kills abomination and if it if not for betty being there he might have you know and and crossed the threshold for the hulk character himself that he might not have been able to come back from and like all of that was really interesting to me and and again part of that becomes that these battles are more about the psychology of these two characters Mm -hmm, than they mm -hmm. are necessarily um just the battle itself which i think is really smart I also think that the thing for me that I mentioned it not really looking as good as it needed to in the first place, I think the character design, you know, I know you don't like Doomsday and, uh, you know, Batman v Superman. I I hate the abomination here because I think it's a terrible design. It looks really like my wife jokingly and kind of seriously was like, so he became the abomination like and he lost his junk. Uh, you know, so, um, okay. Now, wait a minute here. You're going to bring up uh, I, nuclear bizarre saying, doomsday. I know, man. I know, I know, I know, okay. I know. Okay. It's, I'm just, I, it, I thought it was designs, a joke. I, I just thought it was funny. Their character designs are uncomfortably similar. Let me it, put it that way. It, well, and I think one of the things that, um, I just, I don't love the design, you know? Um, and, and part of that is because I feel like, it it almost feels like a production sketch, you know, where you go way over the top and then you should tone it back down. And I wish that they had. I almost wish that and it, he had looked a little bit more like the Hulk. So it would be almost like that mirror, you know, of, right. of you know, so 
that's the thing I, I really kind of I think if they had gone more in that direction, I would I would have even less problems with just the actual execution CGI wise because they are pushing the boundaries big time here with what you can do. Uh, and so um, but I, yeah, I mean, even rewatching it, I I still don't love the fight. And I, I, I think that it, it's probably the biggest problem with the entire film, but it doesn't it actually doesn't ruin the movie for me in any mm. way, really. I don't think at this point I'd ever I think in the beginning I felt it was a terrible ending and it ruined the movie. And then I sort of lightened up on that. and I was like, eh, it doesn't ruin the movie. And I'd say I'm now at the point where it's like, you know, I, I can respect it. it. There are so many things that have. And I I do think that it's unavoidable to see stuff that came out later and have that recolor my perception of the ending and say, well, okay, now I have an appreciation for how far this didn't go or how much more restrained it actually was. And I know that sounds weird, but it's it's I guess it's akin to, you know, you have a burger from somewhere and I, I always go back to these hamburger analogies, but. You know what? So let's go with a football one just to mess with everybody. And by football, I mean American football, not what people call soccer elsewhere, Uh, where you see a play and you think that's the worst play I've ever seen called. I hate that play. But then you watch the game footage later and you're like, okay, it's not the greatest play. And then you see an even worse play called by another team. and You're like, oh, all right. Well, for comparison's sake, that other play wasn't that bad after all. So I I think that winds up lessening the effect as well. Um I, I, but the thing is, I look at it and I just say there are so many things they could have done to make it work better, including just change the lighting on it. Sure. Put a yeah. little more I shadow. I can agree with that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Trick the eye a little bit more. And mm-hmm. so that's that's probably what I would have done. Yeah, no, I think that's a great thought. I, and, and I couldn't agree with you more because I do think the parts of the fight that are more in shadow uh, work, uh, you know, pretty well um and which is crazy because you know you you have the whole battle at the school there at culver university and it's all in daylight and i think it works actually really well even though you can tell the cgi parts and is the parts that are practical but they meld well enough and i mean i mean that sequence where you know he saves her from the fire and he stands up and he's holding her you know and the flames are all around like that's an incredibly cool like apocalypse now type of shot and it's it's really well done and i i honestly have to give it to the uh director here leterrier because i think he does a fantastic job honestly with the direction here i really liked a lot of the camera movement that he has especially in the sequences where we're just with Ed Norton, you know, um, in South America and all of that stuff, I think works really well. Um, I think he makes some really good uh, lighting choices. I love the scene, you know, where uh, Betty and the Hulk there or in the mountains and the way that the lightning's flashing and kind of like gives you like that monster moment, you know, and yet she realized she's with somebody who's safe for her. Uh, and, and all those type of things. And so, um, I, I, you know, he, he wasn't known for, for doing this type of film at all. And yet I think he does an actually really good job. And part of that is because I think that for the, especially rewatching it, I feel like he sticks with this fugitive style movie, action fugitive film 
And he doesn't really lean into, I would say, in many ways, the comic bookiness of it. Um, he tries to keep things as grounded as possible. And, and I think maybe that's also where that very last fight loses a lot of that grounding. And that's mm-hmm. maybe why it's a little bit removed from the rest of the film for me. But up until that point, I I really love, you know, his choices. Yeah, you know, I and it's not to play like armchair writer or director or anything, but I think maybe also a way to have dealt with that ending is to have it told from the perspective of the people watching the fight more than mm-hmm. being in the fight. I think that probably would have sold it better. Uh, I think that there is – it's unfortunate that this is the forgotten Marvel movie. I mean, Hulk is the forgotten Marvel movie, sure. and The Incredible Hulk is a forgotten Marvel movie as well. I think yeah. that this has not gotten the recognition it deserves for the things it does do well. Uh, I think that Leterrier's real strength is in the performances he gets from people. Yep, yep. Uh, now, Ed Norton, Tim Roth, William Hurt, Tim Blake Nelson, Liv Tyler, these are all good actors. These are all people who are going to give you a good performance to begin with. But I do think that Leterrier unlocks something from Tim Roth that makes him really mm-hmm. interesting as an antagonist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that he plays up, uh, you know, William Hurt's uh, role as a bad guy, right? He, he, makes, he makes the general so much more uh, menacing than we're typically used to seeing him. He's not just mm-hmm. a protective father. He's something of a, you know, a D-bag, right? And it's like, yeah. I could buy this guy being so stubborn and dumb as to think mm-hmm. he can take down the Hulk, mm-hmm. right? That he he has that believable sort of yep. pride to him. Um, yep. and, and it's one of those things where I think there are so many elements here that it's unfortunate that they haven't carried them forward and found a way to blend them in. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that has something to do with rights and everything. But I want to ask you actually very pointedly is... I've never been able to get the sense as to whether this is PR. It probably is, at least partially. But when they... I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here. When we flash forward to the Avengers, they say, oh, Mark Ruffalo is who we wanted at the time to begin with. And then I watched this film, and I really think that's a disservice to Ed Norton, because I think he mm-hmm. does a good job in this movie, and I think yeah. he makes a good Bruce Banner. Mm-hmm. How different do you think this film is with Ruffalo in it if the, if that if it went that way and do you think mm-hmm. this film is as good without Ed Norton in it So you know I I know their original choice was Ruffalo but I think what's fascinating is that the characterization that you get for Bruce Banner and the Hulk all come from Ed Norton being so sold out to making this a real character, making them real characters, you know, the, the angst and the, um, the drive to try and find a cure, uh, to not want this power, to hate everything that he's done to himself, the loss of Betty, you know, uh, everything that's happened, you know, it's every it's written on every part of Ed Norton's face. But Ed Norton also rewrote most of this script. 
Mm. He's the reason this movie turns out the way it does. And the way the character, even though Ed Norton won't portray the character anymore, the way it's portrayed by Ruffalo later on still has that, I don't want to be this character. Like when he shows up in the Avengers, you know, at the beginning, he definitely doesn't want to to be a part of this. He wants to be left alone He, he because he can't get rid of this thing. Um, you know, I, I just, I was one, I was struck by the fact that I think Norton does a fantastic job, but there's such depth to who Bruce Banner is. Like he is such a tragically, you know, tragic character. He, yeah. And there's such depth to him because it, it comes from every fiber of Ed Norton's being, because that's who Ed Norton is. I mean, they ca- they ended up casting him because they saw him in Fight Club. And the duality that they saw there is what they wanted for the character of, you know, Bruce Banner and Hulk. And that's exactly, I think, what you get. Um, and his chemistry with, with Liv Tyler is fantastic, I think. Um, and so... I get disappointed that more people don't respect the work that he put into this film and just how good it is. And if it's good at all, it's, I think, majority of his influence for really caring about the character himself and throwing himself into the role like he does every role that he's in. See, I find that interesting because all of the accounts are that he was... Now, and a lot of this also is probably studio PR getting ahead of the story, but there are a number of inferences in articles through the years that he became insufferable and took too much credit for what happened on screen. So I I think that the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Uh, I would hate to think that he was trying to take the reins from Leterrier at all, Um, Mm -hmm. but I do think that you do have a valid point that he is an integral part of this and it's unfair to ignore that to at mm-hmm. least pay tribute sure. to it and say he wasn't the easiest to work with but we wanted to at least acknowledge that he helped us find the character mm-hmm. well right? and that's a fair to, comment yeah. well Terry even said that you know Look, he's he he said to him about himself, you know, I'm not the most adult director, but we're just because we're making a superhero movie doesn't mean it has to appeal just to 13 year old boys. He said, Ed and I see superheroes as the new Greek gods. And see, that's so interesting because that is exactly where Zack Snyder goes with it. Exactly. Yeah. And it's so fascinating that right here is is the 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 tip off point for that opens the door for that for man of steel for the snyder verse as it's come to be known and i almost wonder if there is uh not a conscious like conspiracy sort of thing but a subconscious knee-jerk reaction on those who have hitched themselves to the marvel bandwagon that this film is not something that they enjoy thinking about because of the fact that it shows, you know, like I, I'm, I'm stating it really clumsily, but 
maybe it is as simple as the fact that Marvel fans voted early on that they liked the Iron Man template. And so they should have known that the Snyder template was always going to be the alternate template to, uh, you know, that, that main one sort of thing. And it seems to me that DC fans were comfortable with that. They were like, we don't care. That's fine. That works. And so you, as, as a big, you know, diehard DC fan, you see this film and you respond very well to it. And so it's like, it, it's almost like this is the ink blot test where you can see who's going to break off and go toward one, you know, connected universe versus the other. Well, and I think part of that was this movie does deal very seriously with its character and the internal nature of its character. Right. Um, and the, and part of that it is that Bruce Banner is not as much fun, quote unquote, as Tony Stark. He's not making as many jokes. He's he's much more kind of introspective and and almost kind of morose character because of all of the things that he's going through. And and I think the way that Ed Norton dives into that um, works very well. And I, I think. Iron Man did a great job with the way you gave Robert Downey Jr. the ability to dig into the personality of that character in his own way and to bring it to life. And Tony Stark does feel like a very full-fledged character. There's there's nothing cartoony about him in, in many ways. He just kind of... He ha he has a reality to him, right? You believe that that character is who he is because of the way he's played by Junior. I think that Ed Norton does the same thing for Bruce Banner, just in a completely different way. And I think you have rightly pointed out here, and I think we kind of talked about it in in our first episode, is that it does kind of become people responded so much better in the sense that. Once they saw what Downey did, that's what they ended up wanting. They didn't want this much introspection, it seemed like. They didn't really want this much, like, almost seriousness. Uh, and, you know, and partly because, you know, the movie does feel like The Fugitive. I mean, in, in the sense mm -hmm. that there aren't a ton of quippy lines and, and a ton of jokes in the movie. There are very few of them here. Not that there isn't some humor, but the movie is is not trying to be something that it's not. Um, and I, I I think that something that people didn't maybe respond to as well. And and I, I I'll say too, um, since we're kind of talking about cast, I think it's an absolute crying shame that Liv Tyler's never been asked back or even referenced again in the MCU. Yeah. Um, because one, I love her as Betty Ross. I think she's a strong character who is just as smart as Bruce. And at the same time has this wonderful love for this character who has a problem that he may never be able to get rid of, you know, and her goal yeah. is to help him find a way to maybe live with that. Um, and, I thought she did a fantastic, I mean, a, the way she stands up to her, you know, father and everything as well in the film. Um, 
I just I, I loved her performance. I was I was really struck by how I thought good she is, and and she's kind of understated and not real over the top or anything. And I just I think it's real travesty that we never get to see her or hear about her ever again in the MCU. Yeah, they've made too much of an effort to scrub her from everything. But at the same time, I think that if you look at the MCU after this point, the great regret is that it's obvious that Hulk is never going to get his own movie again. Right. Ever, 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 ever. And this is it. This is the last Hulk movie. Uh, He will always be second fiddle. Oh, but he was in Thor Ragnarok. Yeah, it's a Thor movie. There's never going to be a... You know, uh, uh, I made reference to it way earlier. The the old storyline of Hulk turning gray and becoming a bouncer in Las Vegas. Like, you know, oh gosh, yeah, I think he was called Mr. Fix-It, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Big, something like that. No, but it was great. It was in like pinstripe suits and stuff like that. It was a really interesting arc. And it's like, it, it really is a shame because it's, this type of seriousness indicated they might have explored that later in... Mm-hmm. Uh, in the MCU, and instead we eventually wound up with Shrek Hulk. And it's like, I look at Shrek Hulk, and I'm like, that is not... that. I think, honestly, that's why Shrek Hulk is so embarrassingly disappointing to me in Endgame. It's because I look back at this, and for whatever flaws exist in this film, this character was treated with real sincerity and real drama... And to think that that's the eventual way they're going to go with it, just, it makes me sad to revisit this or even yeah. think about it again. Because it's like, oh, no, that's not at all how this should have gone. Mm-hmm. Can I just mention one thing, too? I really appreciated that Ty Burrell's character here wasn't Ty Burrelli in the sense that, you know, there's usually kind of a type that he plays. Yeah. And I really love the way they play that guy, which is... And it, I think it reflected well on who Betty Ross is, is that she had chosen another really good person, right. you know, that she yes. had chosen somebody who cared about her, loved her, uh, tried to understand her, you know, would do anything to protect her. Uh, and he comes off as just a great guy. I even turned to my wife as we're watching this. I was like, I love that he's not a jerk. Right. And that is actually... Uh even though I think the word trope is massively overused and it needs to be retired for the next 15 years because people are using it so much it means nothing anymore. But how often do we see the, you know, the, 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 the love interest who moves on is suddenly with somebody that doesn't make sense if they loved the main character before where they're in a relationship where you're like, well, they're, they're not at all like the way that person was. What would make you attracted to them? Mm-hmm. And to your point, yeah, I could see Betty moving on with this guy yep. and saying, no, 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 that, you know, like you can see the, the, the personality aspects that would have been uh, theoretically, you know, they, they would have been similar enough that somebody like Betty who fell in love with Bruce mm-hmm. would have fallen in love with this guy too. Like it makes sense. It, it's, it's a thoughtful choice. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that's that's good to call it out. But let, me, and the thing is, this always winds up becoming. I, I want to. Pro- I promise you. I promise you. At some point, when we're discussing one of these movies, this is going to be the first thing I bring up for a change. When we get there, I'm going to remember to make this the first thing we bring up at some point. The music. What do you think of the score here? You know, I w- because I was just thinking about that honestly. 
myself and because we had talked about it with with Iron Man and and how there wasn't really any detectable theme really and all those kind of things. What's fascinating is here that you he goes with Craig Armstrong, who's not really known for this type of score in the first place. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen Love Actually, but Craig Armstrong, mm-hmm. those themes in that movie are incredible. And he's got three beautiful, like, romantic themes in that that are some of my favorite com- uh, compositions for film in, you know, years. And, um, you know, he's done stuff like elizabeth the golden age and and uh you know uh, bone collector that kind of stuff so it, but this really isn't his thing and yet knowing that the film is supposed to be a fugitive like thriller it actually fits relatively well with the movie because it's almost like they're specifically not trying to make it a comic book film they want it to feel more like that type of thriller film and that feel the music that we get feels like it fits well within that um in much the same way that the soundtrack we'll talk about it when we get to the winter soldier that's meant to feel like a, a 70s espionage spy thriller type of mm-hmm. of soundtrack mm-hmm. uh it's not trying to be comic booky it's it's specifically in a genre so Whereas it doesn't have the things that I would normally look for in a comic book movie, it's not a terrible soundtrack. Um, It's not one that I, you know, listen to a ton, honestly, though, outside of the film. But I do think, for me, that it works for what they're going for in this movie. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. It does its job. It does what it is supposed to do. And while that might not win you an Oscar... You know, I, I saw the, the saying about an editor is the best work is work that you don't notice. Right. And while I wouldn't go that far because that seems insulting to a composer, this is not a score I'm going to buy and blast, you know, like the Star Wars score or something like that. But at the same time, it it does. It's there and it's it's working with the film and it's part of the whole. OK, yeah, I'll take it. Mm-hmm. I am interested for you, you know, as you've revisited this film now, you know, has anything changed for you? Has it gotten better? Has it gotten worse? You know, you've kind of alluded to that some of this has been ameliorated over the years. What's what's kind of changed, uh, you know, aside from being a little bit more forgiving for the end fight? Has there been anything else that's changed? Not really. I mean, I still have a problem with uh, the way Tim Blake Nelson's character uh, is handled. Um, uh, Stearns, Samuel Stearns. Mm-hmm. I, like, that that's the character that really doesn't really strike the right notes for me. Uh, I think it can be tightened up a little bit. But I would say that probably over the years, I have uh, come to like this more than I did at first. Uh, not that I disliked it at first, but I've come to like it more. And I think that um, it's interesting because maybe that was my first indicator that I was eventually going to warm up to the Zack Snyder verse like I did, which we talked about on Snyder Cuts. Um, Maybe that was my first indication that while everybody else has 
let's say worked to forget this one i mm-hmm. i always found myself to be somebody saying you know that this was pretty good guys I, right. I don't know why we're not really leaning on this a little bit more um so i i would just i would say that uh probably the the positives have come out more for me over the over time um and it's you know every time you watch something more than once unless it is truly execrable like a batman and robin there is you can find the good in it right you can really sort of tease that out and i think that's true of this too you start to see more of the good about it than the bad and i think honestly the thing that keeps it really rooted for me is i do think tim roth is just so darn good in this role he's so fun to hate he's so fun to dislike during this movie. So I think that's that's something I, I latch on to as well. What about you? Yeah, I love you calling out Tim Roth, you know, and I think I love the juxtaposition, obviously, between him and Bruce, you know, one who wants the power and the other who doesn't want the power and how that yeah. ends up corrupting. You know, I just, it's great. Um, I have only grown in admiration for this film over the years in the sense that, you know, when it came out, you know, it was fine. It was good. You know, I didn't hate it or, or dislike it or anything like that. But I, I probably thought, oh, well, Iron Man was a little bit better. But, you know, this was this was good. But, you know, I, I think, you know, in retrospect, as we're doing now outside of the hype away from all of that, as we've seen more of the MCU, I think this film has only grown on me. And that is for, I think, all of the strengths that I believe it has, which is it is a film that has its own sense of being. It has its own sense of purpose. It's it's not a film that's just trying to be something else. It's definitely trying to be its own thing. And I think to serve the character to which it's telling its story for in the way that character needs its story told, um, which is going to be darker grittier more introspective because that's who you know bruce banner is and the hulk is you know uh and so i i really yeah if anything has changed it's just that this film has has i think risen in uh my my admiration which makes me wonder you know i i where do you fall you know as we've had this conversation you know we Iron Man, we ended up giving an extra half star to both of us. Uh, so where are you then with the Incredible Hulk? Are you at the same kind of level of stars you've been at for a long time? Are you giving it more, less? What, what What's going on? No, this one winds up climbing up a little bit more in this case that, that puts it at a solid four. I have thought about our Iron Man conversation, and I sort of got swept up in the spirit with that. And I still go back and forth between four and four and a half. I'll stick with the four and a half for now, but um, this is a solid four. This is a film. I will come back and revisit uh, when Disney eventually buys universal um, and triggers the apocalypse. I will watch this on (laughs) Disney plus and uh, I will all hail my Disney masters and uh, you know, their further partnership with Amazon as they become their own nation state. (laughs) That dominates the globe, melts the ice caps, and sends us all into servitude, uh, like a, uh, a a hellish reincarnation of the plotline from the Space Merchants by Frederick Pohl and C.M. Cornbluth. Everybody should read it because that's what we're living. Uh, sorry, that's a tangent, but yeah, this is a solid four. 
I, I, I give this a really solid four, which is it's just sort of climbed up in esteem for me uh, as the years have gone by. Where do you end up with it? Yeah, it's funny because I'm at a four as well. Um, and I think I was at a three and a half when I looked on Letterboxd after having watched it. And I was like, no, this is a four. And and not only was it a four there, but in that sense, but I moved around my MCU ranking on Letterboxd and people might be shocked to find out where it sits in my Letterboxd ranking. So you can find me on Letterboxd at Matt Rushing 2 and see where that is. I'm not going to tell you. Yeah, you have to go find <laughs> me and follow me and all. Um, but, um, you know, I guess, uh, you know, the obligatory rankings, you know, we only have two films, uh, but we yeah. got to do it. Um, so <laughs> is it Iron Man Hulk or Hulk Iron Man? What, what are we going to do? <laughs> uh, it's got to be Iron Man Hulk. This yeah. was an easy one. Yeah, that's, that's an easy one. And and the thing is, folks, you should listen every single week because I'm going to continually forget that we have to rank them and that you're going to hear me go, oh, gosh, I swear, just I'm, like just gonna, I'm just going to I'm just going to I'm going to I'm going to start writing down your rankings as we go. So please you can do. remember. Yes. Please, for the love of God, <laughs> please do that for me. Uh, we don't want this to go all Snyder cuts with me where I'm continuing with like, I don't know. It's somewhere. It's yeah, not this less. is an easy one, though. Yeah. Yeah. Two, I can manage Two, oh, I can manage. man. Well, I'm excited because uh, it'll be interesting. Uh, you know, they had Iron Man and then the Incredible Hulk, and then they immediately give you Iron Man 2. So we're going to be talking about Iron Man oh, 2 no. next time. And oh, uh, no. and then, of course, it's Thor and Captain America coming up after that, um, and then the Avengers. And then that's all of uh, Phase 1. So uh, it's a quick phase, honestly. But uh, as we look uh, towards getting there, John, uh, if people want to catch up with you there online and talk to you more about Hulk or Iron Man or anything else that you've got going on, where can they find you? Well, you can find me losing my temper on social media at Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. Uh, Matt mentioned Letterboxd before. I have a lot of fun over there myself. So, you know. Let's link up over there. You can uh, also find me over on the Nerd Party Network, co-hosting two shows. One of them is called House Lights, where we look at the work of directors uh, either divided. We, we either look at their entire career. We look at them divided by decade. We look at them divided by, uh, you know, specific, you know, one per decade sort of things. It's sort of how the, the spirit moves us on that one. And I am also co-hosting what I consider to be a delightful Star Wars podcast called Aggressive Negotiations over there on the Nerd Party. Uh, and that is with you, one Mr. Matthew Rushing. Aggressive Negotiations. Just, That's just if right. you haven't had a chance to listen. I uh, I hope people will um, because yeah. we do. We have a ton of fun over there on that show. And uh, so, um, you know, you can find me all over social media, Matt Rushing 2 uh, you can find me here on the network. I do literary treks in the orb. Um, so literary treks is about the books of the comics of Star Trek, and the orb is about Star Trek and Deep Space Nine. Uh, and then I'm doing Warp 5 right now. Uh, John Mills and I are celebrating the 20th anniversary of Enterprise, and we're walking through every single episode, kind of revisiting that series and talking about it. It's been a lot of fun so far, so hope you'll check that out. I am not only doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills on the Nerd Party Network. I am also finish a show over there called Outpost I did with Drea Kaufman, and we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. But as always, thanks so much for joining us. Avengers! Avengers!